Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've been uh, covering this store here on CHML for quite some time now. There's a, a group of people in the east end of the city that are participating in a rent strike. In other words, withholding their rent because they say that uh, the landlords in the buildings in which they occupy uh, are not doing a very good job of keeping the buildings up to par. Uh, they consider that there are some health and safety standards. I mean, we've presented these arguments uh, off and on over the last little while. And uh, there's, I think, a pretty good chance of there's some legitimacy to a lot of these complaints. Uh, the other hand on the corner, of course, is the people that own the buildings and their representatives are saying this is much ado about nothing and they're doing everything they can, etc. Well, those participating in the uh, rent strike have now been given eviction notices. Now, we're not sure exactly how many have been handed out to this date, but obviously it's a rather daunting experience to be told to be out of your accommodation in the next couple of days. Uh, they say this is a campaign of harassment meant to disrupt the tenant organization that has been going on over the last little while. Joining us to talk about this is Brendan Jowett, who is a staff lawyer with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic, uh, who's been on the program before to talk about this. Brendan, thank you so much for jumping in today. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let me ask you something. Uh, with these uh, these eviction notices being given, uh, does this surprise you? Um. No, I can't say that it surprises me. I mean, it's certainly uh, consistent with a pattern of escalation that the that the landlord has been displaying uh, through throughout the rent strike. I'm also just going to point out, uh, just in relation to what you were saying um, at the outset here about what the rent strike is is fundamentally about. I mean, part of it is to do with maintenance and repair issues in the building, but uh, another part of it, and I might say the biggest part, is that the landlord is trying to increase the tenant's rent above the provincial guideline. Um, on the basis of, quote-unquote, uh, capital expenditures in the, in the buildings. Um, and uh, so this is called an above-guideline increase. And, you know, for a number of people who are, you know, low-income tenants uh, who've been living in these buildings for, for a long time, uh, rent increases of almost 10% over the next two years uh, seriously threaten to move them out of their homes. So that's another big kind of piece of the, the rent strike. Now, to that point, and you and I had this discussion, I guess it was back in the summertime, uh, there is an element of the legislation that allows the landlord to do that, but there has to be some justification for it, doesn't there? They, I mean, and they have to apply for it. Yeah, so there's an application that the landlord has to make to uh, to the landlord and tenant board to be able to do that. Uh, the counter argument is that that legislation doesn't account for the real life circumstances of tenants. There's nothing that accounts for tenants' ability to pay. There's nothing account that accounts for uh, for the landlord's failure to uh, fulfill their obligations in relation to uh, to the building. Um, I see folks in these kinds of situations all the time where they want to tell the board, the landlord and tenant board, about their maintenance issues. They want to tell the landlord and tenant board that, you know, my um, ODSP or social assistance payments aren't going up by 10% over the next two years. I can't afford to pay this. But those arguments have no place in uh, in the legislation or in, in the analysis. And so I think that the this this approach, the, the rent strike approach, um, is, is a reaction against a regime that the tenants view as being fundamentally unfair. Actually, to your point, uh, their ODSP payments aren't going up at all now because the Ford government's rolled those, those increases back. Yeah. So it's it's making this even more of a daunting exercise, isn't it? Exactly. It's, uh, it, it is austerity in action. So let's, let's talk about tenant rights because that seems to be a gray area and, and probably one that not enough tenants or people that are, are applying to be tenants actually take the time to learn about uh, until it's too late. I mean, and the, the phone call to your clinic, of course, and, the, and they can uh, get some help about this and some insight as to what's going on. But it's, it's a very, very murky area for a lot of tenants, isn't it? Yeah, I think that a lot of people, there, there's basic information that a lot of people don't have in terms of understanding what their rights are and how to assert them. So how do, how do you do something about that? I mean, clearly your clinic does that, but cl they're paying or playing rather, I think, on, on that inability to have a, a firm grasp of what their rights are in a situation like this. And a lot of people simply give into it because they don't think they have any recourse. Yeah, I think that um, uh, certainly a lack of education, a lack of information, and also a, a power imbalance between landlords and tenants uh, certainly makes it harder for, land, uh, for tenants to be able to assert their rights. Um, you know, most landlords, or at least uh, like large-scale housing providers like CLV Group, uh, which is involved in uh, this, uh, you know, in this matter, um, you know, they have, in fact, in this particular case, they have three different legal departments working for them. They have one uh, paralegal firm that's assisting with 
their efforts to evict the tenants for non-payment of rent. They have their own corporate counsel. Uh, they have another firm that they've uh, that they've taken on to deal with this, um, you know, this joke uh, loitering issue. Um, you know, so they've got access to resources. And meanwhile, you know, low-income tenants, they're not hiring three law firms to assist them. They're maybe, if they're even aware that there's a legal clinic that exists, they might put in a call. But, you know, most people don't know where to go. All right. Now, I had some conversations over the last little while with some of the people that are impacted by this. And, and I don't know whether they've received eviction notices. We haven't heard from any of them yet. But one of the concerns they had, and you talked about this loitering aspect, is is they wanted to get together and organize and talk about what's going on with this person, what's going on, is this are they doing this to you too? Uh, and obviously, they're they're getting some pushback on this. Is it true now that certain elements of the of the building, uh, for instance, meeting rooms, are now being considered to be uh, out of bounds for them? Yeah, I mean this this loitering and I use you know air quotes on this. This loitering policy is is an absolute joke. I have here a letter that I'm looking at from um, CLV's legal counsel, Micheline Dupont, and it actually says that um, uh, loitering includes using the lobby or common areas as a staging point or meeting place for any purpose, particularly where such use interferes with building operations. So this is using the lobby or common areas as a staging point or meeting place. Um, you know, in, in these buildings, my understanding is that prior to CLV taking over, they actually had couches and chairs in these relatively large lobby areas because they were trying to encourage a sense of community, a mm-hmm. place for people to meet and to be able to spend time. And then she, she actually goes on to say in this letter, CLV Group will ensure that the lobby and common areas of the building are used for the purposes for which they are designed and not for individuals or any organization to use as a facility in which to promote their ideology or agenda. If the agenda of the tenants, which is to push back against this rent increase, uh, is, is offensive to CLV or, or is, it constitutes loitering, then what, what CLV is doing, and again, this, this use of this term loitering, um, is clearly a pretext for trying to prevent the tenants from being able to formulate a position, from being able to advance their agenda, which is the purpose of a tenants association. Um, and, uh, and, and they're, um, yeah, it's a, like this is clearly a pushback uh, against the tenants' efforts to organize. Well, it sure sounds like divide and conquer to me. Yeah, and that's a classic strategy, which is maybe part of the reason why some of the tenants have received eviction notices and others haven't. By the way, just a, a point of clarification, if somebody were to be evicted and move out by the end of October or whatever the date is on, on the notice, uh, if they rent that apartment out to somebody else, are they allowed to increase the rent? They're allowed to increase the rent however much they want. They're, they're allowed to rate, like right now the, the rents are arguably below market rate because these tenants have benefited from rent control. But what the landlord's trying to do is push the low-income tenants out so that they can jack the rents up to what the market will bear. So from a financial standpoint, I, I and I'm not going to try to get in their heads here, but, but from a financial standpoint, it would be to the landlord's best interest to, to get rid of all these people. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah, the, the, the landlord, and, and the, they've, they've shown this throughout this process, the landlord doesn't care about these tenants. The landlord is, they, they care about their profits. They are a real estate investment trust at, the, at, at their core. Um, they exist to generate profits for their investors. And, they, and, and existing sitting tenants do not help them do that. Who stands up for these people? I mean, I know, I, we, we know about the great work that you guys do at the, at the legal clinic, uh, Brandon, but, but invariably when governments try to get involved in this, and that's tried, it has been attempted in the past, uh, they will set up consumer protection agencies or ombudsmen or somebody that can stand up and listen to the, the concerns and, and be a voice for them in, in situations like that. Is there any such entity at all when it comes to tenants and renters? You know, that's a, I mean, that's a really interesting point. Like, I can't think of any other area of the sort of consumer protection uh, industry or, or even just like, you know, the um, uh, situations where you have a, a, a seller and a purchaser. I can't think of any situation where the purchasers are treated so poorly and where it's like their interests are just so disregarded. I mean, the tenants are ultimately paying for a service, which is to have a home that they can live in um, and, uh, you know, a place where they can build their, build their lives. And, you know, I, I, I can't think of any other area where the customer, you know, is, has, has less power and is sort of less respected than in the rental housing market. Um, 
there, there is a body called the Rental Housing Enforcement Unit, which is basically a toothless entity uh, of the government, uh, the, the Ministry of uh, Municipal, Municipal Affairs and Housing. Um, what they'll do is you, you call in, you make a complaint, and then they will call the landlord and they'll try and you know sort of work with them. But I can't think of a single case where, and I've been doing basically exclusively housing law for four years, and I can't think of a single case where I've seen the, uh, the uh, Rental Housing Enforcement Unit actually step in and do something. Um, the Landlord and Tenant Board is a place where, you know, tenants can go to make their case. But it, it's, it's difficult. I mean, our, our office has basically four lawyers who represent all of the low-income tenants in the city of Hamilton. There is no other place to go. And so we're not in, you know, we're, we have to pick the cases that we take on. We're not able to represent tenants on all of those various cases where they may have a, a, a great argument and a great issue that they need to bring forward, but we simply can't be spending our time trying to enforce maintenance standards. Um, there is property standards. People can go to the to the city's uh, property standards department, although we find that, again, there is a, a kind of, um, uh, they tend to be a little bit toothless. They tend to uh, you know, try and you know they'll they'll talk with the landlord and try and ask the landlord to do stuff, but I very rarely see them issuing fines against landlords for non-compliance. Um, I think that there there is a strong push in the city right now for proactive enforcement, and I think that's the way that we need to be going. Is that that there should be spot checks on buildings. Um, the city should be uh, checking in to make sure that landlords are meeting their uh, maintenance and repair obligations. Um, and, and that that's really the, the strongest way to ensure that tenants are actually getting what they pay for. Yeah, I, I've been down that road. I've, I've tried to act on when I was on council on behalf of some tenants in situations like this. And, and the fallback position for just about all of them is, hey, we don't have the money. Sorry, I'd love to fix it, but we just don't have the cash unless you let us raise the rent. And that's yeah. what that's what they throw back at you. And, and the city, you're right, is kind of toothless into this. They, they can try to enforce the the existing bylaws and the health and safety standards, but non-compliance can be a long, long, very, very costly legal fight that the city really doesn't want to get into. Yeah. And and the other side of that coin is the tenant the, who doesn't maybe have somebody like you representing them uh, is very much intimidated if they have to go before some tribunal where you've got some lawyer representing the other side. And, and uh, you know you just don't have the legal wherewithal to be able to fight that. Yeah, tenant, tenants are very easily railroaded through through that process. So therein lies the problem, and there's obviously not the infrastructure in place to try to deal with these. Uh, I, I guess the obvious question a lot of us have got at this stage, where's this all going to go? I mean, I, you know, these people have, some, I think, some legitimate concerns. I've heard from many of them over the last number of months. Uh, they've tried to do what they can here. Uh, uh, I understand that some people are, are saying, well, look, if you withheld rent, that's essentially you're breaking the law, breaking the contract. But at some point, you have to do something to get the attention to this matter, don't you? Yeah, and I think that the tenants have found a, a way to do that. And, you know, I mean, there's, uh, you have examples of a number of rent strikes in Toronto that are emerging. I mean, we should, we should be seeing this as the canary in the coal mine that it is. There is an emergence right now of a, of a tenants' rights movement, a recognition that we are living in a, in a housing crisis. And tenants are finding ways to push back against that, um, that are not necessarily provided uh, through legal, you know, legal avenues. Um, and, I, and I think that this should be really, uh, really concerning to us, the fact that these tenants are putting, they're putting their tenancies on the line, they're putting their housing on the line, because they know that they can't afford not to. I know there's always a pushback, by the way, when we have discussions like this, uh, and I hear from some landlords and actually a couple of landlord associations that say, you know, we're, we're not trolls, we're not evil people, and, and, and I'll take them at their word. I, 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 that's true, uh, but there are bad apples, and uh, there needs to be a system in place to deal with those bad apples, as there was with anybody else. Uh, that's in the business, that there are certain responsibilities that come with being a landlord and, and an owner of a property like this, and, and they've got a responsibility to, to live up to that end of it, too. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't say that it's a matter of bad apples, and I really, I really resist the idea of, like, you know, pointing to, uh, pointing to individuals involved and in saying, like, you're a bad person, you know, or like that, you're, you know, that, that there's evil at play. What we're, what we're dealing with is an amoral system, that doesn't care about the well-being of people who actually are depending on it. It's a product of 
framing housing as a commodity rather than as a necessity for life. Uh, and so, you know, with what, what's going on with um, CLV Group here, this is an issue of a landlord whose sole purpose is to make money, is to generate money for their shareholders, and they don't care about the fact that it pushes tenants out of their homes. Uh, they don't care about the fact that it is causing rents to skyrocket in the city uh, and that it's making, you know, for working class people trying to live in the city of Hamilton, which is a working class city, um, that it's making the city unlivable for them. So it's, I think it's the entire notion of housing as a commodity that we have to be resisting. And, you know, the, this idea of, well, how is the landlord going to afford to, uh, you know, to upkeep these buildings and how do they, uh, how do they, you know, make, make ends meet for themselves? I mean, these people are not, like Interrent, is, as I understand it, reading their reports, they're a $1.7 billion corporation. This is not, you know, like raising these people's rents is a drop in the bucket for them, but it is a way of them generating, squeezing more profit out of these buildings, um, and, and they do so in a way that is without regard for the well-being or the interests of the tenants. By the way, we should also put this in context, and, and I know we've had this discussion in the past, Brandon. Uh, if these these are people that are, as you say, maybe paying under market rent, slightly under market rent, simply because of rent protections that have been in place. Uh, but if the rents get jacked up, or if these people get uh, evicted, uh, they have nowhere to go. I mean, there there is a rental housing crisis in this city as much as there is. We've talked about gentrification, about housing prices. Rental housing falls into that too. It doesn't get talked about it as much, but it is real. Yeah, absolutely. It's I mean the, these the same units in the same buildings that these people are living in. Uh, the prices are rising several hundred dollars for those that for the people that are that are moving out. They're going from, uh, I believe, like eight, you know, eight or nine hundred for a for a two bedroom to over fourteen, over fourteen hundred. So that's my that's my understanding of it. I might have my numbers a little bit uh, a little bit off there, but um, you know, how how are these people supposed to live? The rent is going up by, you know, forty fifty percent. Where do people go? Yeah, and where do they find the money? This is not this is not a group of people that don't want to pay the increase. It's a group of people that can't pay the increase. Well, exactly. It's a, you know the, the, for them it their the decision is literally between paying rent and putting food on the table. Every dollar that goes towards rent is is a dollar taken away from other basic necessities that these people you know they're they're mostly I'm you know working class immigrant. Uh, if lots of folks on on social assistance or on uh, on ODSP, um, you know, like they're they're living paycheck to paycheck, dollar by dollar, and every dollar that goes towards a, a rent increase is a dollar that comes out of their you know out of their children's mouths. It's a dollar that comes uh, out of their um, you know li- whatever the limited budgets are that they have, and and. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a dire situation, which is why these people, these people don't want to be having these meetings. These people don't want to be, you know, having to go to the landlord and tenant board and fight for their tenancies week after week. But they have no choice right now. Hopefully, somebody is going to get involved. I mean, these people need a hero and, and, and a champion at this stage. And uh, we'd like to see somebody step up. I know you guys are doing what you can with the legal clinic, but... Uh, there are higher-ups at Queen's Park and other places that need to step up here, too. Brandon, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. It, my, my pleasure, and I will say that these people, are, these, the, these people do not need a hero. These people are the heroes, and yeah. it is their power that we, uh, that we need to acknowledge and recognize. They're doing an incredible job. Amen to that. Thanks again. Take care, Bill. Cheers. Brent, Brendan Jowd, of course, spent the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I got to tell you, this this is a story that I think is extremely important, and that's why I'm, I'm glad we could cover this on the program today. Uh, but it was a little surprising to some people as I was talking to some folks in the newsroom about this because they thought this was already in place. Uh, and that was a, a, a ban, a national ban, that is, on conversion therapy. Now, thousands of Canadians are pressing the federal government for a national ban. There is a petition that's uh, going to be presented to the House of Commons later on that has, uh, last count I saw, about 2,500 signatures on it already. And uh, it's a move to get something done that I think should have been done an awfully long time ago. Uh, the creator of the petition is Devin Hargreaves, uh, who is co-president of the Why Queer Society for Change, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Devin, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. 
Yeah, thanks so much for, for having me on and for helping to, to shed a bit of light on this uh, this important topic. Well, and, and and to my point from just a couple of seconds ago, I, I, I was surprised, and, and some of the f- folks I was talking to about this in the newsroom today were surprised because they said, oh, that's already banned, isn't it? And I said, no, there, there are provincial bans in place, but there is no federal ban at this stage, is there? No, there's not. And actually, I've been campaigning to, to have conversion therapy banned for, for quite some time. I've worked uh, very closely even on this petition with Jen Takahashi from Alperg uh, here, in, here in Alberta. And that's been the biggest question that's, that's come up. It's why are you fighting for something that already exists? And then people find out that it is still legal and just the, the shock on their face to, to see that. So that's uh, a completely relevant uh, response, and uh, I think it's just a matter of raising awareness that it is still out there and it is still going on. Maybe we should uh, step back just a second, and maybe for those who may not have a clear picture of what we're talking about, maybe you could just explain uh, the term conversion therapy and what that entails. Yeah, conversion therapy is also sometimes called reparative therapy. Uh, it's the pseudoscientific practice, essentially, of trying to change someone from being queer. Um, and by queer, uh, I mean a member of the LGBTQ2 plus spectrum, uh, to being heterosexual. And that's based inherently in the belief that it is somehow wrong or or incorrect or sometimes sinful uh, to to identify as such. But being a member of the the queer spectrum is not uh, a mental issue anymore. It's not a mental health uh, thing. It's not a disease. Uh, and it's 2018. It's time that that's accepted and uh, conversion therapy can take its place elsewhere and, and not in Canada. Historically, the LGBTQ community have gone through a great deal of persecution uh, over the years. Uh, some of it actually, uh, as I say, very physical imprisonment at one time. It used to be illegal. Uh, there was chemical castration, of course, which uh, I, those that ever saw the movie The Imitation Game about Alan Turing. Uh, are aware of that, uh, that uh, we like to think that here in 2018 we've progressed beyond that, but the fact that this still exists uh, tells us we have a ways to go yet. Definitely, and I, I don't think it's so much a matter of chemical castration or lobotomies anymore. It's still a harmful practice that does affect um, uh, queer individuals, uh, both psychologically, mentally, and uh, emo- emotionally, and, and sometimes physically. Uh, so what we're campaigning for uh, and and some people have asked why I'm not campaigning for an, an all-out ban on it, is we're campaigning to, to ban conversion therapy for minors. If someone as, a, as an adult does want to seek treatment because they, they would rather not identify that way, I am opposed to that, but as long as you're not doing harm to anyone else, that would be, would be your own prerogative. And that's another big question that, uh, that gets posed is, well, what about uh, what about people who want to do it? By all means, do it. Don't force that belief on a on a minor. But the other side of that coin is don't force people that uh, that are comfortable with what they are, notwithstanding some of the societal pressures that may exist because of that. Uh, that th- you don't tell them you've made a bad decision. That seems to be the underlying pretext to this, isn't it? Yeah, let's let, live and let live, and uh, let's uh, get some legislation in place to protect our, our minors who don't necessarily legally have that voice to speak up for themselves. Uh, because this is not always done, well, for many cases, it's not done uh, you know, with, with the consent of the individual. They're basically being told that, look, you're, you're wrong, uh, we need to fix you. And, and, and that, the, the very fact that that exists and that mindset exists uh, is, is somewhat troubling. Yeah, that's exactly what we're, we're fighting against. So talk to us about the process. How did you get involved in this? And, and, and obviously you've got very strong feelings about that, a great deal of passion for this, Devon. But at the same time, uh, it, uh, it's, it's, it's a brave thing and a brave move for somebody to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be proactive on this. I'm, I'm going to organize. I want to get people behind me on this. Definitely. Well, uh, actually, it was, once again, uh, Jen Takahashi from Alperg, which for those of you tuning in is the Lethbridge um, Public Interest Research Group uh, out of Lethbridge, Alberta, uh, had started a campaign to have it banned uh, provincially here in Alberta. Uh, so I partnered with her on that. We, we fought for that for about a year and a half. Uh, it did seem likely that a uh, private member's bill was coming out for that here. And what do you do then? It's we have a majority government here. Um, I would would really hope that they can pass that. Uh, but in all our time and meeting and consultation with our our MLA and and things like that, they always said that there's this uh, 
this limit on uh, a provincial ban. It's not criminalized, so it can still happen. They can just regulate essentially how it can or cannot happen. Um, so with that came the push to, to have it added to the criminal code to make it something that is enforceable on a, on a federal level. Uh, and uh, and that's where that came from. And I've always been a firm believer of uh, if you want something done, get out there and do it. Don't wait for someone else to do it. It, it, the, the the legislation that's being proposed here right now, uh, some are suggesting that, look, at the, the onus should be on the people that are actually uh, presenting these programs and, and supporting these programs. Uh, and, and I know that that's a, a bit of a controversial thing. There are some people that are wondering about the focus, but the idea of a ban in general, I mean, I, I think is the, that's the main thrust of what you're suggesting here. I mean, the other, the other things are details that can be worked out. Exactly. And the, the thing with regulating it for um, providers or, or psychologists or things like that, it still does leave that, uh, that religious loophole um, of, of perhaps non-accredited individuals providing these services, which is why we want an actual ban on conversion therapy itself. We want conversion therapy for minors in Canada criminalized, uh, and, uh, and then that way that gets the all-encompassing protections in place instead of just driving it further underground. Let me talk, if I could, for a couple of minutes uh, with you, Devin, about about the impact, about those that have gone through the therapy and, and the psychological damage that this can do to somebody. Yeah, it's uh, it's traumatic. Uh, and, and at that young age, when you're discovering who you are, to be told that how you uh, identify and how you feel is, is wrong um, definitely causes trauma. It causes... Um, in some cases, uh, suicidal uh, tendencies, things like that. Um, uh, one individual I, I was aware of ended up in the psychiatric ward after attempting suicide, after being told that um, being trans their, their whole life was, was wrong and that it was a sin and they were going to hell. Um, and, yeah, it can, can leave long-lasting results. Some people are able to, to overcome that, uh, and I, I really hope that anyone who has been subjected to the um, can get the support they need. They're for sure welcome to reach out to, to myself, to the White Rail Society for Change. We'll, we'll definitely do what we can to, to get them in touch with um, with, with the help that, that's needed. It's, uh, and again, I think a revelation to a lot of folks that are listening to our conversation right now, because this, this, this whole idea of conversion therapy in 2018 seems somewhat counterproductive to a number of the other initiatives that have been enacted in different parts of the country right now about creating safe spaces, uh, about LGBTQ rights, uh, things of that nature. And you like to think that, uh, okay, we've turned a corner on this, but the fact that this still exists uh, in, in some parts of the country right now uh, is somewhat problematic, and and we mentioned off the top that there are some provincial bans that are in place right now. But uh, you're you're suggesting that they're not as strong as they could be. A federal ban uh, would be a much stronger uh, focus, I guess, to try to 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 create awareness about this, and and obviously have some some hard and fast penalties for those that perpetrate this. Exactly, and it's not a matter of the the provincial bans not being as hard as they can be. It's they as hard as they can be is still leaving a a, a gap in in those protections. Um, because you, uh, a provincial government, unfortunately, doesn't have the power to, uh, to completely criminalize something, which makes it less, uh, less enforceable. I, I was just looking at the law that was passed in Ontario. Ontario was the, the first province to pass this law, banning conversion therapy on LGBTQ children and uh, preventing medical practitioners from actually billing. That, this is how entrenched in the, in, in the system that this was at one point is that those were actually carrying out conversion therapy here in Ontario were actually billing OHIP uh, because this was a considered to be a a, a, a medical practice. Uh, and that yeah. bill thankfully addressed that and, and said you can't do that anymore. Yeah, but then there you go. That That is still leaving that gap, right, um, where non-medical professionals can still find, find loopholes with that. There was obviously an age uh, de development to this, too, and you've referenced it a couple of times here. Uh, th this legislation, of course, is directed at, uh, at, at patients who are 18 years of age uh, and under, because obviously oftentimes it would be the parents who would put their children into programs like this to try to quote-unquote cure them. Uh, the fact that somebody over 18 uh, as an adult uh, legally can make that decision, I think, addresses your point that, that if somebody wants to have some sort of discussion or therapy, uh, about uh, sexual orientation, that's that's fine. Nobody's saying you can't do that. This is forcible, forcible uh, uh, conversion therapy that uh, that I think we need to address here. 
Yeah, you've, you've nailed that right on the head. Um, that, that's exactly what we're saying. That's what we're campaigning for. As I said, personally, I'm opposed to it at, at all ages, but we're not going to tell people what they can or can't do over the age of 18 as long as it's not causing any harm to anyone else. So which process? Where are you in the process right now? You, you've got this petition uh, that's gaining an awful lot of, of momentum right now. Uh, what, what's the process? How do you get this before the, uh, the, the parliamentarians, and how do you get them to act on this? Um, the required number of signatures to have the petition presented in uh, Parliament is 500. Um, this, this did take off right off the bat. We broke that overnight on the first, uh, first night of the campaign being launched. Um, so it is getting, uh, it is getting presented. Uh, at this point, we are looking for an, an MP to, uh, to step forward and, and take on getting a, a bill in place to, to tackle this. Uh, this is a very nonpartisan project. We're willing to work with uh, any party or, or politician that's, that's willing to do that. And and once that happens, in other words, somebody has to present this as as a, as a private member's bill. I would guess uh, that has or to be a, or a government bill. Yeah. Uh, oh, with the, even better if it were a government bill. They seem to get a lot more uh, momentum behind them if it's a government member uh, that that can actually introduce this, and uh, then it goes through a committee process. So, uh, and there is a process, and I know that can be frustrating, but at least uh, if you get this moving and on the docket, uh, that that's got to be comforting. But there's a time sensitivity to this because we we know that there is going to be a, a, a federal election. Uh, in about a year's time, and you'd like to think that they can move this thing through the system and, and pass this into law uh, before they break for that that election, because everything that's pending at that stage basically just goes off into the netherworld someplace. That is correct, definitely. The, the sooner we can get this uh, out, the, the better, uh, which is why we're working now um, behind the scenes to, to try to get something in place to, uh, to hopefully be presented shortly after the uh, the petitions presented. Uh, we have not got a, a solid uh, on that yet. So if, if any MPs are listening right now, uh, send me a message and we'll be happy to work with you on it. Well, let me ask you about that. How can they get in touch with you? I, and by the way, there's a twofold for asking that. First of all, I'm sure there are some people listening right now that want to sign on to this petition uh, and they need a web page where they can do that. But at the same time, you're looking for some political support here too. Oh, definitely. Um, with that, uh, I can be emailed at uh, devonhargreaves at hotmail.ca. Uh, as far as the petition goes, uh, it is petition E1833 on the Our Commons website. Uh, so go to, to Our Commons, uh, pull up the petitions page, and uh, you can even just search conversion therapy, and it'll be right there. Uh, I want to congratulate you once again, Devin, on what you're doing here and the initiative that you're showing and the support that you're getting. Uh, the fact that you've got as many signatures as you have already indicates that obviously this is an idea whose time has come. Uh, and uh, the sooner we can get this thing done, I think the better off for everybody in this country. Uh, and uh, this is all about doing the right thing. And, and you'd like to think that uh, politicians can can set aside partisan and parochial differences and just simply say, let's do the right thing. Uh, not the first country to do this. I know Malta has banned this. A number of jurisdictions in the states have also banned this. Uh, we mentioned some provinces here have as well. So uh, this is this is uh, an idea whose time has come, who's already starting to gain some momentum. And uh, I want to congratulate you once again for being the catalyst for it as far as uh, getting it done on a federal basis. Oh, and I, I appreciate that once again. Thanks so much for having on. And it's not for... Uh, it wouldn't be happening without the support of, of tons of people before me and I'm sure tons after. So thanks, everyone, for, for the support and getting involved. Listen, Devin, continue good luck. We'll follow this story, and I know we'll be in touch in the future as this uh, hopefully rolls through the process. Sounds good. I'd always be happy to chat again. You betcha. Take care now. Devin Hargraves, the creator of the petition uh, and co-president of uh, Why Queer Society for Change. Uh, like I say, when I broached the subject this morning, some people were quite frankly surprised that uh, there was not a national uh, law uh, banning uh, conversion therapy already. There isn't, and there should be. And uh, the sooner we can get involved and uh, get some political muscle behind this, I think the better off we as a society. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, my blog this morning, which is on our uh, webpage, the Bill Kelly Show page at 900CHML.com, why don't millennials vote? Uh, for those of us that are left scratching our heads at the results of recent elections on both sides of the border, a quick analysis of who actually votes may offer some valuable insight into the results. In the 60-plus age demographic, almost 90% of eligible voters cast their ballots. But on the other end of that spectrum, 
That's the millennials, the 18 to 26, only 25%, only one in four actually took the time to vote. So, you know, you talk about, you get the government you deserve. Uh, why aren't millennials voting? Why does 75% of them not get involved in the political process? Joining us to talk about this is Christo Avalos, who is a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow uh, in history, of course, at the University of Toronto. Christo, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for, thanks for having me. We've always had this concern about voter turnout, and, and it's it's been a concern, and I think a North American phenomenon for the longest time. But when you do this demographic breakdown, uh, the fact that the, the the millennials, the 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 up and coming generation, uh, don't seem to be involved in the political processes, that's rather troubling. No, certainly. I mean, it it, it, it certainly. And one one of the complications is that young people are very engaged in a lot of things, and some of those things are political, but they might not be you know, the core electoral politics, which is why you see the voter turnout issue. And you're right in noting that, you know, the narrative in this election or the, the recent provincial election here in Ontario is that this was going to be the first election where millennials, um, which is, you know, the, you know the, there's a broad definition. Sometimes it's younger, younger, younger people. Sometimes it's people up into their mid-30s. But regardless, this was the first generation, uh, the first election in a long time where the boomer uh, generation would not be the biggest potential voting block, and you know the the caution I raised at the time was that look, millennials might now be the biggest voting block, but the question is, will they actually vote in an uh, in, you know sufficient numbers to to actually become that biggest biggest voting block? And as we've seen, you know they didn't. And and you're right in in Canada. We do have voter turnout issues. Some provinces are have higher voter turnout than others, but you know this election in Ontario, we had higher turnout uh, than we've had in a long time. But, you know, it's, it's nothing approaching, you know, the 80, 90 percent you see in some parts of the world. What I find interesting about this, and almost in Congress about this, though, Chris, though, is this is the generation, the, the millennials. This is the generation of, of, of startups, of, of going at their, on their own, of saying, look, I don't care how you've done it in the past. We're going to be different. We're going to be innovative. Uh, and, and you would think that they would take that sort of energy into the political process, but that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, it's, it's, it, in some ways, it, they have. Like, I mean, if you look now, we're electing more younger politicians than we've had before. I mean, so in a sense, we are changing things. Like, for instance, whether it was the 2011 um, NDP rise or Rachel Notley's government in Alberta, or even, you know, the Ford Conservatives have a decent amount of, of young people in their, in their caucus. You know, young people are getting engaged more directly in the political process than maybe they had in the past. I mean, you're... You're 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 much more likely to see sub thirty year olds in in government in you know legislatures and in parliament. You see some of them, some young people in cabinet. Even Justin Trudeau, in a, in a relative sense, is is quite young for for being you know prime minister. So you know young people are getting involved. But you you make an interesting point. It's it's not translating into a broad kind of rise in youth and young people turn out at the polls. And it, it is quite puzzling because, you know, young people in some ways have a lot of grievances, um, whether it's, you know, lack of access to the same kind of job opportunities their parents had, whether there's a concern about social programs not being there, whether it's a concern about, you know, high daycare costs for people who are maybe starting families or who will be starting families in the next few years. So, you know, there is a kind of sense that young people are getting involved there are role models for young people. I mean, Justin Trudeau is the oldest of the federal leaders right now, um, and we have two leaders that are sub-40, um, but it's not translating into, into participation amongst the kind of sub, say sub-35, sub-30 crowd in actual voting. Is it because they need some sort of a charismatic figure? And I don't mean that as, as, a, as, a, as a knock against them, but historically we've seen that happen. Uh, where where that that age group that demographic will will as you say uh, gravitate to a uh, Barack Obama uh, you meant Bernie Sanders even in the last election uh, you know he was an older guy but by the same token that demographic seemed to to relate a lot more to what he was saying no certainly and I've written a bit about this if you look at uh, Jeremy Corbyn for instance in England who's running on a you know a distinct socialist platform and I think it's helpful because he's almost he's old enough to remember the 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 the, the world before neoliberalism. And the young people know only neoliberalism, and they don't very much like it. So it kind of was a, a match made in heaven, somebody like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn and the young folks. But what happened in England was that they were projecting a conservative majority in the election in 2016, um, or 2017, sorry. And what ended up happening was a minority government, uh, in large part because the pollsters uh, systematically under, 
uh, underestimated youth turnout because Jeremy Corbyn was able to tap into youth issues and youth energies in England. And I think that's certainly part of it. And a lot of people have talked about how Justin Trudeau maybe didn't win the election on young votes, but certainly maybe converted a minority into a majority based on a kind of higher youth turnout. And you're right in noting Obama, um, you know, his victory in, in, in 2008 especially uh, was driven in part by a lot of youth energy and a lot of energy from the African-American community. But the challenge is, and this goes back to what you've talked about, is that, the, you know, the U.S. has elections every two years. And what ends up happening there is that, um, you know, in 2010 when the midterms came up and in 2014 when there were midterms again, I mean, the Democrats took quite the shellacking because Republicans tend to be older and whiter and richer. And the people who, you know, and the Democrats tend to have a lot of young voters who vote less. And, like, that's a real challenge is consistent voter engagement amongst young people, like election to election, municipal, provincial, and federal. And, and that engagement, I think that's a key point. Uh, and, and, again, I'll go back to the last presidential election, where that demographic seemed to gravitate towards Bernie Sanders. Uh, but when Sanders failed to, to win the Democratic nomination... Uh, that that's, that support just petered out. I mean, they did not translate over to the Democratic candidate, to Hillary Clinton. They just stayed home. I mean, to a certain degree, that's true. I mean, Clinton, I mean, one of the narratives is that, you know, too many Bernie Sanders supporters either, you know, they did voted for Trump or what have you. And actually, you know, it's actually a quite common phenomenon. A lot of Hillary Clinton supporters voted for John McCain in 2008, for instance. But, but you're right in noting that for whatever reason, uh, Hillary Clinton was not able to capture youth energies. Now, if young people still voted for her in heavy numbers, I've saw some information that if only people under 30 voted in the U.S. election, the Democrats would have won 49 out of the 50 states or 48 out of the 50 states. Because young people, even when given a choice between two candidates they don't very much like, would have chose Clinton. But you're right in noting that for whatever reason, she wasn't able to tap into the kind of uh, youth energy and maybe she wasn't offering sufficient platforms to young people. And I think it's a bit of a feedback, excuse me, a feedback loop because, you know, and maybe a chicken and egg thing is that young people don't feel politicians represent them. Maybe they don't vote. Ergo, politicians look at this demographic and say, well, they don't vote, so we don't have to represent them, which in turn, you know, leads this feedback loop. And I, and I wonder what it'll take to break it. And, you know, maybe people had this optimism that something like Barack Obama would do it. But, you know, he failed to implement a lot of his progressive pl- platform promises, and maybe that disengaged a lot of youth, and, you know, and that could have led to kind of the resumption of the, the status quo. And, and your point's well taken, because people are going to say, well, who cares if they vote or not? I mean, you know, people vote, and we elect governments. But politicians want to get reelected, or elected in the first place. And they look at these numbers, as, as you know, Christo, and they'll say, look, at, if, if I have to gear my policies and programs to the plus 60 group, because those are the ones that I know are going to vote, then you're going to forget about some of the issues that may appeal to millennials that may be not so much to the plus 60. Uh, things like public transit, things like daycare and issues like that are never going to get priority uh, treatment from those because they figure, you know what, the people that want that stuff really don't come out and vote. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's certainly part of it. You know, it's like when you look at these elections, like in our recent Ontario election, you'd say, well, it's trying to get the most votes possible. Well, that's certainly true, but you know, it's also it's a mixture of, okay, well, which demographics vote? How can we get them to vote? As we know, the conservatives, even if they, they ended up winning a large majority, but even if, you know, they tied with the NDP, or even if they were a couple points behind, they would have won because they had better turnout in suburbia. So it's like our, 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 our system in general, but our first-past-the-post system in particular, encourages kind of micro-targeting of, voter, of voting, which means that, you know, you don't actually have to appeal to a lot of the electorate. You just have to get about a third of the electorate to really like you, and about 7 or 8% extra people to really just vote for you on that one day, and you'll have absolute power for the next five years. And the reality is that with, with, with young people, they're often left out of these equations, because as you know, they, 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 they don't, uh, they're not assumed to vote as often. And even the pollsters correct for this. I mean, polling is not an exact science, but they don't just call 1,000 people, say 250 are voting for this party, ergo they're going to get 25% of the vote. They rejig it based on where you are, your age, your gender, your, 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 your income, your education, uh, your occupation. And they mark all of these things into likely voter models in some cases. And when you call young people, they say, okay, the young people, a person says she's going to vote for Andrea Horwath. And maybe she is. But we do know that young people vote less. So we actually, in any good pollster, would lower the effect on their, 
on the, on the polling, which is why when parties look at polling and say, okay, where do we have to target? They are going to at least, at least hypothetically, uh, aim their policy sites a little bit older. And I think that's part of the, the, the phenomenon right now. What about the technology, Crystal? I mean, we're talking about a generation that, uh, you know, that it's, it's well-versed in, it's, it's all about Twitter and Instagram and, and, and social media. Uh, and, and we're using 19th century technology for elections here still that, uh, that may just I, turn off some people, frankly, because they, there are more and more jurisdictions that are moving now to things like online voting and, and, and that sort of thing, or even the voting method. I mean, you talked about the first-past-the-post method, which is going to be employed again in the next federal election, and who, who knows how many elections after that, that people may just say, you know what, I, I don't want to get involved because the process is so old-fashioned, no wonder it's, it's, it's broken. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of concern about some of these things. And I mean, some municipalities have been dealing with this. I mean, I live in Kingston. In Kingston, one, we, since the last municipal election, we've been able to vote online. Um, we, we, and that's continuing in this election. And actually, in this election, we're having a plebiscite on the question of having ranked ballots for the municipal election, for the next municipal election. So there are kind of, at the local level, in a lot of communities in Ontario, some of these discussions about how to modernize elections. But it's really, it's an interesting phenomenon, because you're right, we have this very modern kind of apparatus around our media. You know, like I said, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, a lot of these sources, yet it's, it's kind of, it's not just for young people, it's affecting older people, too. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of the talk in, in the last federal election in the United States was about fake news, and that was driven, you know, uh, you know whether it was by Russians, if, you, if you're conspiratorial, or uh, a lot of Macedonian uh, teenagers who who could make money off clicks off Google AdSense if you're, if you're more, you know, maybe more uh, Occam's razor about it all. But the reality is that, um, is that you know, it, it was implemented very, quite successfully by Trump, who is this kind of old, very conservative guy, very unpopular with the youth. So even in that sense, it's like the guy who best weaponized mass, you know, or weaponized social media for his purposes is, is the kind of person young people absolutely do not like even if they didn't vote. So where do we go from here? How do, how do we increase that number? How do we entice them? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think we want to go to the stage of some jurisdictions where it's against the law not to vote. Uh, but, but, you know, it, it's, it's one of these situations that I think we're looking at a whole segment of the population, and as you say, a growing segment of the population that seems to be disengaged. I mean, it'll be interesting. One question is, and this is, it, you know, some people might say, well, is this a pattern? And, and we could look at historical data and say, well, what did 30-year-olds do in the 1970s? How did they vote? And is it just the case that as these millennials, people like myself, age, will we vote more? And maybe we will, and maybe this is a kind of age-old question about do young people just become more engaged as they, as they age? Uh, I'm not sure if that's the case. In terms of what can we do, I think there are a few things. I think things like online voting are certainly, uh, certainly helpful. A lot of young people have very precarious lives. They work irregular hours. Um, and, you know, it, it sounds, and this is not an excuse because there certainly are multiple ways to vote in Canada, but some people maybe, you know, don't think they can advance vote and therefore on election day they're very busy with work or what have you and they can't vote. Some people have suggested, Bernie Sanders has suggested that in the United States at least, that the voting day, the federal, the, the election day would become a national holiday uh, and giving, so there would be no, like, you, you couldn't be, you know, have to work on that day and you could you could go and vote. You know, I think that reforms to our electoral system would help. Uh, you know, that's more arcane because not a lot of people are necessarily tuned into it. But I think a, a proportional system would get young people more excited because one of the problems with first past the post, and some people like the system, I'm not, not necessarily a fan, but one of the big problems is, is it encourages negative politics. It encourages you voting for the guy or against a guy or gal you don't like. He's like, I don't like this party, so who can I vote to stop them? And I think a proportional system, at least hypothetically, gives people a positive choice, saying, I can vote for the guy or gal I really like. And at the end of the day, my vote won't be wasted. And I think when you have this language of votes being wasted and voting against your, voting against your enemy, instead of voting for a positive change, I think that that narrative could encourage maybe more participation because it, I guess it, 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 it sounds more, more productive.
Well, and it does. He, I mean, you talk about that element. The other is one candidate has to demonize the other candidates to to try to, to disenfranchise that. And, and uh, obviously, with this other system that you're talking about right now, you don't do that because you may need that other candidate support down the road, or, the, or at least the followers of that. As we saw, uh, I guess the best example of that was the, uh, the the conservative leadership convention from last year, uh, where you saw a voter shift over to Andrew Shear on the later side. He's a, he's a nice guy. He didn't take shots at anybody. And it was a lot more easy, I think, for an awful lot of the people that were supporting other candidates to gravitate to him. That that seems to be a common characteristic in 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 that sort of balloting, as opposed to what we do now. No, certainly, I think ranked balloting is a good system for municipal elections and for single party seats, like when you're electing a leader. It's not necessarily good when you're electing um, like parliaments or legislatures. I think there you need something like mixed member proportional, and these systems are good because they. They pre- in a lot of cases, they preserve the local ridings. They don't have party lists that are designed by party insiders. All the options are people who are already running. And most importantly, they, they give people a proportional voice. And it gets rid of this idea of, of winner-take-all. It gets rid of this idea of micro-targeting. Because again, in a, in a proportional system, Doug Ford can't say, look, we're going to target like older folks and we're going to target the non, non-Hamilton 905 and that's where we're going to win this election. And we can kind of say, screw it to the rural people who always vote for us. And we can say, screw it to the downtown people who never vote for us and go to that micro-targeting because 38 gets us absolute power for one half of a decade. And, and to me, it's like that kind of system. Uh, it doesn't appeal to me. And my inkling is that it doesn't appeal to a lot of young people. And, and I mean, I'm concerned because young people should look at that system and say, hey, participation is vital. Because if you don't, you are going to lose your voice for five years in some way. But I think a proportional system, one that if you get 38% of the vote, it gives you roughly 38% of the power, which means Doug Ford would have a strong, you know, a strong lead over the opposition, but he would still have to work with them on issue-by-issue issue bases. Um, I think is a more collaborative approach and is a more engaged approach. And I think, frankly, you know, there's been a lot of coverage at Queen's Park but, you know, there's a certain sense from some people that, well, you know, Ford's got a majority. You know, at the end of the day, he's going to pass this legislation. In minority parliaments, um, be, it, be it under first-past-the-post or under a proportional system, um, I think there's a sense that, you know, we, politics matters. Day-to-day politics matters. People have to pay attention because the party leaders have to debate with one another and they have to constantly keep a pulse on public opinion to kind of understand what legislation should be passed and not and how it should be amended. And I think that makes for a much more, you know, engaging political experience, even between elections. Christo Arvelis, uh, Social Sciences and uh, Humanities, of course, at U of T. Always a pleasure, Christo. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.